Welcome to The Vampire Squid, a podcast about increasing transparency and education in finance. This is Rosan Lee, and welcome to episode 23 of The Vampire Squid. Today we have on a very special guest, Kirk Duplessis, and he is the founder of OptionAlpha.com which is a educational site for trading options. And Kirk has been trading options for decades. So I actually listened to a number of his podcasts before I started trading options. So I thought it would be great to have him on the show to dive a little bit deeper into some option strategies, tips for beginners, things to look out for. And I think throughout this interview, there were a lot of great nuggets of information. This interview is actually an hour long, so we're going to break it up into two episodes. Today's episode will cover Kirk's background, how he started with Option Alpha, how he started off in investment banking, living in New York. We talk about calculating the success of option trades. We talk about indicators to look for when looking at options. Insurance companies, Warren Buffett, there's a, there's a lot of great pieces of information in this episode. As always, if you have any comments, questions, suggestions, please feel free to reach out to me at alan at thevampiresquid.com. And you can always visit me at my Facebook page, facebook.com slash thevampiresquid. I hope that you guys enjoyed this interview as much as I did conducting it. Cheers. So welcome to The Vampire Squid. I have on a very special guest with me today, uh, Kirk Duplessis. Kirk, thanks so much for coming onto the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me on, Alan. Cool. So Kirk is the founder of OptionAlpha.com, which is an educational site for trading options. And as you guys have probably heard in episode 18, we went over the basic overview of how to trade options. But I thought that bringing Kirk on would be very helpful in terms of diving a little bit deeper into the option strategies, You know how Kirk thinks about trading options, some tips and tricks for... Uh, beginners in trading options, and we'll cover all that throughout today's episode. So, um, Kurt, do you want to give maybe a quick background on yourself before we start so the listeners know who who they're listening to? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And again, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I'm definitely humbled to be here. Um, so I'm just a regular guy. I mean, I just uh, told you before we jumped on the call, I mean, my two kids are sleeping right now. I stay at home and watch my two younger daughters and um, and trade options and run Option Alpha. Um, I live outside of uh, Pittsburgh in PA. My background is I was an investment banker in the M&A division for Deutsche Bank in New York. Um, after I spent some time there, realized I didn't want to work 80 to 100 hours a week for the rest of my life. My uh, wife um, now, but girlfriend at the time, smartly convinced me to move and into DC, down to DC and, um, you know, take a little bit less stressful job. So then I went into the REIT space and I was an analyst covering REITs, which was frankly just as stressful because you have to wait for the companies to announce and you have to go through all the reporting stuff and writing reports and, you know, all the filing stuff. Um, so I eventually did that and, um, have since just been trading options since I got out of New York and, you know, after I left the REIT space, I spent a little bit of time in our family's mortgage business and kind of helping our family run that. Um, but then have just been trading for the last five, six years now options uh, exclusively. And that's really, you know, the main source of our income. Great. Just going back even a little bit earlier, did you know that finance was something that you wanted to do in college or even in high school? What was the the mindset and the transition <clears throat> for going into M&A and, you know, ultimately trading options? Yeah. I mean, like, I don't think I was ever 
I never knew that I wanted to trade options. I'll say, I'll, I'll say that first. <laughs> but my parents, my parents have been in the mortgage industry forever, right? Like my mom uh, speaks all over the country, um, and is, you know, very high up in the mortgage industry. And so, so like for me, I used to kid all the time, and it's actually not really even that much of a joke, but like our family field trips and like vacations would be like to open houses and to conferences. And, you know, like that's oh, where wow. I would go as a kid. And so I was always ingrained in the financial business, you know, from, from the start. Now, when I got to college, um, and I went to UVA and, you know, went through their, their, um, um, you know, business school there. And so when I got there, everybody that was in school and I didn't, I frankly, I didn't know any better. I like everyone there was like, okay, well, you know, people, we just, we all go to New York and everyone works, you know, for an investment bank or a private equity shop or whatever. And so I was like, okay, you know, cool. You know, I'll do that. Like all my friends are doing it. Sounds great. Like live the New York lifestyle, work for an investment bank. Sounds really cool. Um, and it was great. I mean, like it wasn't a bad experience at all. And I learned a lot in doing that. Um, but I just like eventually found that like that side of the business wasn't really suited to what I wanted to do. Right. And so mm-hmm. when I was in New York, I got a, a chance to uh, do a rotation on the derivatives trading desk for Deutsche Bank. And so that's where I got like a real introduction to it. Right. So like I knew about options in school. You take the classes, you know, to get a finance degree, you got to, you know, do longhand Black Scholes models, you know, calculations and everything. But you yeah. don't really understand it until you actually, you know, see it done on a, on a high level. And so that's where I really got like, the first like real education in it. You know, for my listeners, uh, I, I would assume, you know, a good majority of them have traded stock um, and they've traded in, you know, single names. They think this company's good or this company is good. And, you know, they might go and they might have an investment thesis for that. What is the, what is the transition that you normally see from someone trading stock to trading options? How does that transition happen? So I think the, the easy answer is that most people transition to from stock trading to options trading via vehicles like a covered call strategy, right? Which is the most natural bridge because it's a little bit of both. And I think what people eventually see when they, when they become more serious about how they're going to, you know, trade and or invest that they realize that stock trading takes a lot of capital to do. You're right. Yep. Um, and I'm assuming you're even still, if you margin your account and, you know, are buying on margin, it still takes a lot of capital to do. And two, it's just really hard to, to get the direction right on a consistent basis, you know? And, and that's not because, you know, people are not smart or dumb or whatever the case. It's just because that's how the market is. The market's pretty efficient, pretty random, you know, most of the time. And so it's really, really hard to consistently try to pick those pinpoints of when the market, you know, is going to move higher or not. Like even recently, there's a bunch of companies that just announced and I got like floods of emails from our members, you know, that are just, you know, getting started and they start tried to make a trade in one direction. They're like, Oh, I never expected the company to do that. And I'm like, well, what did you expect? Like it's the market. If it was all predictable and everyone could Mm -hmm. do it, it'd be really easy to, you know, trade and invest, right? We'd all be making money because we could predict what happens, but it's, that unpredictable nature of the market that people eventually get tired of and then they start to look for an alternative. And I think that's where the options space eventually fits into their into their journey. Okay. And in terms of just get diving a little bit deeper into, say, X trader not getting the direction of the market right, how are they employing options to sort of combat not calling a certain stock correctly yeah. in, uh, in terms of movement? So I think it's really easy, right? So when you think about stock trading, it is a one-dimensional system, meaning you can make a choice in one direction or another. And the benefit to doing that is you have a lot of longevity. So your duration on your trade can be years and years and years, right? You can buy XYZ stock and hold it for years until you're right or not hold it for years if you you know are never right. 
So it's one direct, one dimensional meaning you either buy the stock or you sell the stock, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's easy for people to comprehend and to understand. When you eventually make the transition over to options trading, then it adds like a cubic dimension to it. And and I don't want people to get confused because I'm just, yeah, it does add a little bit of complexity. There's new terminology you got to learn, right? But we can all do that. We all learned how to read. We all (laughs) learned how to do math and, you know, we all learn how to use iPhones. So of course we can all learn. Um, but when you do that switch over to options trading, it's like a cubic change, meaning that now you have to not necessarily worry about the direction, but now you can play the direction of the stock. You can also play um, the time decay aspect of stock of options because they do have a finite life. They do decay and expire at certain dates. Uh, they're very much like insurance contracts in that in that manner. Um, and then you can also play what I really refer to as like the biggest edge that you have, and that is implied volatility or this future expected move. And so the beauty about options trading is that you don't have to pick uh, one point and say, okay, I'm planting my flag here and this is the line in the sand. If the stock goes up, I make money. If the stock goes down, I lose money. With options, you can you know, do a bunch of different strategies where you can say, look, I just want the stock to stay in between this range, $5 higher or $5 lower. Or I just want the stock to stay below $70 and I don't care where it goes, right? So if it's trading at 50 right now, it could rally to 60 and I still make money. It could stay at 50, I make money. It could go down to 40 and I make money. So it adds this additional uh, like dimension where you can now basically pinpoint exactly how much money you want to make, your probability of success, um, and then you just play the numbers after that. Does that help out? Yeah, that's helpful. So for my listeners, Kirk actually runs his own podcast, which I've listened to prior. It's called Option Alpha. And, you know, on your podcast, you speak a lot about, um, you know, the chances of success for trades. Could yep. you maybe dive a little bit deeper and maybe provide an example for my listeners? And, you know, what does that mean that this trade has a 70% chance of success? Perfect. Okay. So let's back up and first take a stock. In all cases, right? Whether you really believe it or, or want to believe it or not, the reality is that most stocks have a 50-50 shot of going up or down, right? So as soon as you get into the security, I don't care what technicals you use, right? The reality is, is that most of the time they have a 50-50 shot of going up or down. Sure. I'm mm-hmm. not like disputing the fact that there could be little in pricings and all, like, let's take that out. Like the vast majority of stocks, 50-50 shot. When you introduce option contracts, now what you're doing is you're trading at what are called strike prices that are that are above or below the current stock price. So let's take ABC stock that's trading for $100. If you buy stock at $100, right, that's your that's your strike price. You're buying stock at the current price. With options, you can let's say sell a call option at $110. So that 110 uh strike price, now that's where your line in the sand becomes. And in this example, if you sell a call option at 110, all you want the stock to do is trade below 110. Now, the beauty of of options is that we can calculate exactly what the likelihood is that the stock gets to 110 by its expiration date. So Mm -hmm. if you have a a trade that has a 30-day expiration date, so like we're recording this right now in October. And so if we make a trade today, we know that in the next month, Based on the entire history of the stock, right? How much it's ever moved up or down in a 30 day time period and kind of what traders are pricing in right now, like what their future expectation is, what this expected volatility into the future is going to be. We can pinpoint exactly what that probability of success is or what the probability that the stock gets to that 110 strike price. 
And it's, so it's knowing those numbers. And by the way, these numbers, you don't have to like hand calculate all the broker platforms have them. So you can, it's very easy to find them. You just got to know where to look, right? Um, but you can know exactly what the probability of success is. So let's take that 110 call. That 110 strike call might have a 70% chance of success, meaning there's only a 30% chance that the stock ever rallies from 100 to 110 in the next 30 days, right? If you go out the next month, so now we take the contracts that are 60 days out versus 30 days out, maybe you've got a 60% chance of success because now the stock has more time to rally up to 110, right? So it's adding in this yep. all of these dimensions in here. And again, these are calculated, you know, usually on a per strike per dollar amount basis. Got it. And how specifically are these being calculated? So there's the implied volatility. So how are you getting to the 70%? Yep. Yeah. So the biggest the biggest one in there is implied volatility or the two biggest ones in there are implied volatility and then just um, the actual like time until expiration, right? So as time until expiration gets shorter, so as we near the expiration date, then that means that the likelihood that the stock is going to make these, these huge moves in, you know, 10 days is much greater than if we have two days until expiration. Okay. So that's the first one is that time decay aspect. Sure. The, the volatility aspect of it, which again, this is where I, I know that you can gain your edge. Like we can mathematically prove that that's a really good edge. The volatility aspect of it is uh, that what are the traders pricing in as the future expected move of the stock, right? So we know the historical move, but now we look at the options market and based on the activity of how many people are buying and selling, how aggressively they're doing it on e either side and how much they're either bidding up the value of options or bidding down the value of options we can then derive an expected range from that stock, right? So if people are really, really aggressive, like uh, let me give you an example, and this might help out the listeners here. Sure. Right before an earnings event, so right before a company announces earnings, implied volatility on, on that stock, or usually on most stocks, is really, really high. And it's not because people are fearful, okay? So that's a misconception. It's not that they're fearful. It's just that people do not know what's going to happen. So they expect a big move in either direction. Okay. They don't know where it's going to be. They, it could be higher, could be lower. So the company could do really well during the earnings, you know, announcing earnings. Uh, they could do really bad. And so it's going to have a big move. So implied volatility is pricing in this really big move in either direction versus a company that's not going through earnings. That maybe is a really big corporation, right? A bill, you know, like one of the, you know, Dow Jones corporations or companies or something, right? Large company. They might not have a lot of, of expected volatility in the stock because it's just a big company. There's no earnings announcement on the horizon. So traders are not going to expect the stock to move too much because there's not a lot of information that could, you know, make the stock price jump. Okay. So in that mm -hmm. case, that, that volatility on that stock or that expected range that it's going to be trading in is much more narrow. This information is in the platform though, that the broker platform that you're using for trading options. Yeah. And in most cases, it's in every broker platform. And the, again, the volatility number is derived from the market. So it's not somebody like some person that says, I, okay, on ABC stock, the volatility is going to be 35%, right? They're not, mm -hmm. nobody's doing it. I think that's a, and that's a misconception that some people have is like, oh, those market makers, they're out to get you. They're, they're going to, you know, <laughs> price it in. No, it's, it's based on market participation and what market participants as a whole, as a collective, all the buyers and sellers on both sides 
are agreeing is the future expected value. And so, yeah, so broker platforms have it. You can figure it out, write it in most broker platforms. We built a software on our website that allows people to do it really, you know, like look at a stock and see the expected range. Um, so it's pretty easy to find if you need to get to it. So say the expected range for that particular stock at $100 is between 95 to 105 and we're buying the strike uh, or we're selling the call at the 110. So mm-hmm. how, how do you get to that 70% just to be crystal clear for the uh, the listeners? Yeah. So implied volatility um, is when we say expected range, that is like synonymous with implied volatility. So if the implied volatility reading is 5%, which in that case, a stock that's trading at $100, a 5% move up is 105 and a 5% reduction is 95. So that would be a 5% implied volatility reading. Implied volatility uh, represents the expected range. And in statistics and probabilities, expected range is a 68% probability range. So in that example, a $5 move higher or lower is a 70% probable range that that stock might trade in. So if you sell anything above the 105 strike calls or sell anything below the one uh, or the 95 strike puts, you've got at least a 70% chance of success. Right. And then so we go, uh, you. now we go out from there statistically based on like a more or less normal distribution curve. That is very helpful. And, you know, for beginners when they're trading options, what are the most common strategies that you'd recommend? And, you know, to dive a little bit deeper into that, what are some things, what are some of the mistakes that beginners make and how to avoid those mistakes? Okay. So I'll cover the mistakes first because I think that they're the most important. Number one sure. is position size. So by far, the biggest mistake that I see all the time, and we've got 39,000 people in our membership platform right now. Okay. So I see a lot of emails from people and I get like (laughs) the same mistakes over and over again. It's the first one is definitely position size. And what I mean by that is that even though you're trading a high probability system, that is not meaning that you're trading a hundred percent probability system. And though I say it a million times and I've been on podcasts and shows and I say it in all of our, you know, tutorials and our disclosures, People still assume 70% is synonymous with 100% chance of success and then they allocate 20 or 30 or 50% of their account to a single trade, mm-hmm. right? And it's just, it doesn't make sense. So you have to realize is that in options trading, just like in everything else, diversification helps reduce, you know, asystematic risk across the portfolio. So uh, what I suggest is you highly, highly stick to a one to 5% allocation per ticker symbol. So you can have a bunch of contracts and you can do all kinds of trades in a ticker symbol that you want, but it's sticking to that 5% allocation per ticker symbol to just to reduce risk. Okay. Um, and so that's, that's number one. Number two is that people think that they can do it 12 times out of the year and be successful. And again, it gets back down to the mathematical expectancy of a system like this. And that is that you have to trade a lot to see a 70% chance of success. It'd be like telling somebody, listen, I'm going to flip a coin. And if you, you know, like I'm going to bet on 50-50 heads and tails. But if you flip that coin 10 times, I mean, you could get eight tails and two heads, right? It's not, it's not the expected. It's not what I thought was going to happen, but it could happen. And people use that same methodology when they get into options trading, right? They get into options trading. They're like, okay, 70% chance of success. So I'll just make 10 trades a year 
And then they have 50-50 at the end of the year and they're like, Kirk, this doesn't work. And I'm like, no, you just didn't trade enough. You just need to realize that you have to keep trading. You have to take all these small positions and you have to really run a lot of small positions out over time so that you hit your expected probability, right? Because your first trade might not be a winner. But if you make a thousand trades, I, I'm pretty sure you're probably going to be really, really close to 70% winners and 30% losers, right? So sort of law of large numbers. Law of large numbers. Yep. Plays out, Got right? Um, so that's number two. Number three is really kind of where we even get into the strategy question that you had. And that is that to be successful in this business, if you want to do this as part of income, right? Uh, you have to be a net option seller. There's no question about it. And so we've done... I mean, extensive backtesting on this. We've backtested 21 million strategies. And that's not, I'm not just like throwing that out there. Like that's a real number of, you know, historical data and backtesting of all kinds of different variations of strategies, you know, that are out there and different ways to do it, different profit targets, different exit targets, different allocations in every way, shape and form. The most profitable systems have been when you are a net option seller. Okay. And I didn't so. Know that. Yeah. And so, and now here's the thing, right? So people say, well, then why do people buy options? And so, and just to cover this real quick, because I think it's important, people buy options for different reasons, right? They buy options for hedging protection. Uh, they buy options just purely for speculation, right? Which is probably what a lot of people do, but a lot of it is hedging. And I use the analogy of the insurance business because the insurance business is exactly what the options trading business is just in a different capacity. People don't think about it that way, but people buy insurance on their house all the time and it never burns down and they waste thousands of dollars in premiums, right? So why don't people say like, well, why do you buy insurance on your house? Well, because if my house burns down, I want to get paid, right? And the insurance yep. companies, they keep issuing thousands of policies. So insurance companies are option sellers in this case, right? They're issuing all of these policies they take in a little bit of premium and they have a really high probability of success, right? Really, I mean, they know what the likelihood is that your house is going to burn down. And so you have to be in this business. If you want to be an income trader, you have to be an option seller because that's where the numbers lead. Uh, and just as like one more sidebar here that nobody knows and nobody talks about this. Like my, my goal on my podcast is to get Warren Buffett on and to mm -hmm. have him talk about his options trading. Nobody, he does $5 billion worth of options trading over the last couple of years and he's all option selling. Like he even writes in his 10 Qs and 10 Ks and his letter to shareholders that his edge is in the overpricing of implied volatility and basically wanting to become an option seller. Like he, he does $5 billion worth of options trades. Do you hear I that? Know on he traded options. Oh, it's, it's right in his 10K. Go, if you go to my, well, we'll link it up here if you want to in the yeah, show notes, I'll, but I'll, I'll definitely put in the show yeah, notes. That's, there's a, that's very interesting. There's a video that I did where I literally like on the screen walked down his 10K, 10Q and read line by line, like where he says he's trading options, what securities, what indexes, what market vehicles, why he's doing it, the whole deal. But listen, and this is perfect, right? Nobody freaking talks about it. And so why do you mm. think that Warren Buffett, not only does he trade options in a really big way, but he also sells insurance. That's his entire business is selling insurance, right? He's got the Geico's, he's got all the, you know, like that's his business. That's where he makes his money. And so, um, so I think it's fascinating. I, I don't think enough people talk about it. I think that was a really good example, especially an insurance one, because I think that really hits home, at least for me. They're selling these insurance contracts and they have a very high likelihood, which would be in this case, the implied volatility of success, right? right. Because your house isn't going to burn down maybe 1% of the time. And yeah, so this is perfect, the right? Yeah. Implied so volatility is very high. It's 
you would be wanting to sell, right? Is that is that the right way to think about it? Yeah. So here's the deal, right? So and it really doesn't matter if implied volatility is high or low. So here's the edge, right? And and this gets to that question. So I think it's good. And by the way, I forgot to answer your strategy question. So we'll we'll get we'll get into that. (laughs) A lot to cover. I'm just you know I'm excited about it. Okay. So look. So this is a a great example. When you have insurance, so I'll start with insurance, right? The insurance Mm -hmm. company looks at your house. And they know through their actuaries what the likelihood is that your house burns down or hundreds of thousands of houses like yours, right? Because they're never, right? And again, getting back to the math side of things, they're not writing insurance on just 10 houses a year. They're in the law of large numbers business. They have millions of clients and hundreds and thousands of you know properties that they're writing insurance on. So that one house burning down does not take down their business, right? Okay. So yep. you have to do that the same in options trading. It's no different. So they look at your house and they say, okay, you know, um, Alan, your house has a 1% chance of burning to the ground. But now here's what they do. They price in your insurance policy. They price your insurance policy like there is a 2% chance of your house burning down. Okay. So they mm-hmm. know that over the course of many, 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 many houses that are just like yours, yes, some are going to burn down, but they price in that over expectation, they like over expect more houses to burn down than actually will burn down. So let's say they write policies on a hundred houses. They might yeah. expect, you know, 20 houses to burn down and price all of their policies accordingly. And at the end of the year, maybe two burn down, right? So they've priced in this over expectation versus what's actually going to happen. And that's how they make their money. That's where they get their edge. Okay. And they do it mm-hmm. in life insurance and health and disability and workmen. They do it all, all over the place. In the options market, implied volatility, right, that we talked about that's derived by the market participants. So the market participants expecting the stock to move 10% up or down or 20% up and down, up or down. Yeah. That expectation is always overstated versus what actually happens. And that's, if you think about it, that's a normal thing that's going to happen. So like people always ask me, like, Kirk, will this edge disappear? Well, as long as we always have a future. People will always over anticipate how high a stock goes or how low they think it's going to go. So like, for example, people always think, okay, the market's going to run, you know, go, go up 10% this year. Well, what if it only goes up 8%, right? Or they think the market's going to go down 20. Well, what if it only goes down 15? It mm-hmm. never goes on like on a long term average basis, right? It never goes more than people expect. Never. It always goes less. It could still fall 15%, but if people expected a 20% drop, it might fall 15 and that's less than they expected. And so when option contracts are priced, they're priced based on that future expectation. So it's like insurance. They're always priced a little bit high on average across the board, no matter what happens versus what will actually happen. So that's our edge. Our edge is in basically selling insurance or you can think about it as selling insurance and capturing that small edge over hundreds and hundreds of thousands of trades. That help? <laughs> yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, I guess I need to start selling some more uh, option contracts. I- <laughs> well, um, if you've been buying them, I'm just going to say thank you for your contribution. But yeah, you can start selling some more contracts. Got it. This, for me, when I first started trading options and I was looking at these charts, there's so many symbols and there's so many indicators. And you know, I think this is probably common for a lot of my listeners too. What do you think are some of the indicators to be looking at when you're first starting trading options? Things Mm -hmm. like we mentioned implied volatility, um, maybe looking at the bid ask spread, making, looking at the, the volume traded. What are, what are some of the things that, um, a beginner should look at, uh, when they're first trading options? 
Yeah. So one thing I can tell you is that actually, if you didn't, if you really started trading options and you never looked at a stock chart, you'd actually do pretty well, right? Like I don't look at a stock chart 99% of the time. I use them in videos because people visually see things and they see stock prices and it's, it's a good visual tool to help people understand. But the reality is, is that you don't need anything that has to do with the actual stock chart itself to be successful trading options. Okay. It has nothing to do with that. When you, when you look at the options, what's really important is, are they liquid? Right? Because here's the thing. If you have an illiquid market where there are, let's just really make it crazy, two people trading options in that market, then how accurate do you think those implied volatility numbers are going to be? They're either going to be really, really high or they're going to be really, really low because you've only got two participants who are basically setting the price in the market. Yeah. So you've got to have an extremely liquid options market. And that really just means like in, let's put it in English, just trade the, the biggest names, the most, you know, the big name companies that you guys, you know, all know and wear and go to their places, et cetera. Right. Try trade the big names. Sure. So, and the big ETFs. Okay. For that matter. From there, from there, you just really have to look at implied volatility and just recognize that when generally implied volatility is high, you may get that edge that we were talking about. It made that edge maybe a little bit better. So you can use a little bit more of an aggressive strategy versus if implied volatility is low, then you might not want to use as aggressive as a strategy. Not that you can't capture that edge, but that that edge is just going to be really small. So like to put it into numbers terms, if you were to, you know, sell a, a credit spread when implied volatility is high, which is a really good strategy that anybody can do in any account, you sell a credit mm-hmm. spread when implied volatility is high, you might have a 70% chance of making $80. When you sell a credit spread when implied volatility is low, you'll still have a 70% chance of winning, but now you only might make $30 on that trade, right? So it's just yeah. that, so the probabilities didn't really change. It's just the payout that changes based on implied volatility. And talk a little bit more about what you mean by an aggressive strategy. So yeah, so there's there's really two main types of contracts, right? And I think you covered this already in your in your other podcast, but you have your put options and then you have your call options. When you choose a let's say non-aggressive strategy, you are doing a combination of buying and selling on the same side. So for example, you would sell a 105 call option and buy mm-hmm. a 110 call option. And so what you've done is you've taken on risk at the 105 price, but by buying a 110 option, you've reduced any exposure beyond 110. And so you can still be a net option seller in that case, right? You can still be net short options, right? You just bought one and sold the other, but your premium that you take in between buying and selling might still be a credit. Um, but that's a, a protective strategy because you're using that, those options in combined combinations that, you know, give you protection. When you go a little bit more aggressive, you would just straight up sell the 105 call option and have no protection on the backside. So you'd say, you know what? Look, I'm going to keep whatever premium I can get for the 105 call option. I'm not going to buy any protection on the backside, but I'm collecting more money, right? So it's not that, again, I don't want people to assume that one is better than the other. You have to realize in the more aggressive strategy, you are collecting more money, but you are taking on more risk for that trade. In the less aggressive strategy, you are collecting less money and you have dramatically less risk, right? So it's all fair and bad. It's all like efficient and fair and balanced. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think that makes sense. And for my listeners, it's basically, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, just believing the stock will be moving in one certain direction rather than protection on both ends. 
is, is what you were saying. Yeah. And it's just, it's really just a matter of, you know, how aggressive do you want to trade, right? Do you, are you comfortable taking in $800, but putting up a thousand dollars of risk, or are you more comfortable taking in $80 and putting up $200 of risk or, you know, whatever the case is. So it's just a function of that. And, and it's, re- it's really should be nothing more than that because all of the numbers and math and probabilities still play out the same way. It's just how, you know, how do you want to allocate it? 